0: I know Pastor Chris already welcomed those who are guests and online, but I just want our online guests as well to just know that we are glad that they're here. So can we just welcome them by giving them a clapping? We're so glad that you are here with us and joining online. And for those who in the room are here for the first time or maybe second time, we are glad that you're here this morning. Uh, We're just thankful that you chose to worship with us. Now I want you to pause I'm gonna need a little bit of audience participation here. And I want you to put your hand on your chest. All right, just pause and, and take note of what you feel. Maybe you feel your heart beating. Maybe you feel your lungs As you inhale and exhale, as you're sitting there with your hand on your chest, is anyone here questioning whether you are breathing? One person found that funny. Hopefully that means the rest of you are alive. Because hopefully you are not actually questioning if you are breathing. You can take your hands down. Because why? You can feel your body at work. You can feel your lungs. And even though you can't see your breath, you can't hold it in your hands. We're not quite to the time of year where you can see it when you walk outside. But you know that it's real. Right? Our world is is full of things that we can't see. Let's take gravity. I can put my Bible on this stool. I I can sit on this stool and I know that it's gonna hold me up. But I can't hold gravity in my hands. I can hold an object and I can drop it. But at some point, I'm trusting in something that I can't see that is at work in the world, which is gravity or, or love. How do you know love exists? How do I know my husband loves me? Well, he shows me. He tells me. His life is evidence of the fact that he loves me. See, we have all of these things in our world that we can't see but we know are real. And yet, when we get to this thing called faith, we struggle. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around it. And an even harder time, understanding and rationalizing and believing in it. And faith, especially and specifically for Christians in God, can feel like this elusive, like ethereal kind of mystery. Like, how do you get it? How do you know you have it? How do you know it's real? What does it look like? What does it act like? All of which can leave us kind of scratching our heads thinking, that's... That's a good question. And no matter how long you've been in church, you've probably wrestled with those questions at some point. Because unfortunately, in church, we talk a lot about faith. But we don't always do a great job of like opening it up and and really pulling back the layers, examining the ins and outs, and talking about what we're really talking about. And the unfortunate fact is that the rest of the world is doing exactly that. Outside the walls of the church and inside the walls of the church, people are deconstructing their faith. They're asking questions and and pulling it apart and deciding maybe this whole faith thing isn't all it's cracked up to be and, and maybe I don't actually believe it at all. But what if the church actually took greater ownership of its role, not in deconstructing faith, but in reconstructing faith, of putting the pieces back together, gathering up the evidence, and recreating the scene of the crime, so to speak, so that people could once again have a clear picture of what faith is. See, it's like a, a, what a good detective does. How many of you guys like a good detective movie like Sherlock Holmes or El Poirot or Scooby Doo and Shaggy Too? Whatever, whatever your vibe is. The job of the detective is to recreate the scene of the crime so that they can have a clear picture of what actually happened. They take a good look at all the evidence, everything that was left, obvious things like um, missing money. Broken windows. Anything that has changed. And they'll pay attention to subtle things like maybe a fiber stuck on a broken window or or footprints. And then they'll even look at like the, the pattern on the bottom of the shoe or fingerprints. They look at all of the evidence, anything that has changed since the crime was committed. But in order to know what's changed they have to also gather verbal evidence, right? You've got to talk to people who were around the scene of the crime, who were nearby. They'll interrogate people who, who maybe heard something or saw something, so you need both. You need the evidence and you need the eyewitness testimony. Because the challenge of the detective, you ready for this? They didn't see the crime. <laughs> Which seems like a dumb, obvious statement, but they didn't see the crime, that's kind of the point. That's why they have a job, that is their job security. Because if they'd seen the crime, there, there would no, be no reason for the detective. But because they didn't see the crime, They have to gather up the evidence. They have to look at the testimony, hear the testimony of others. And they're they're operating under this belief that a crime was, in fact, committed. And they're believing that not only that, somewhere out there, someone is behind the crime. Someone is, is responsible for what happened. Following Jesus requires us to trust in something we cannot see. Based on on what we can see, what we can observe, the evidence, what was left behind or, or changed in a person or a situation, and that belief is called faith. But let's pull the layers back a little more. The book of Hebrews gives us a definition of what faith is. It's actually maybe one of the only complete definitions of the word faith that the Bible offers. And if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't, that's all right. You can follow along on the screen. But it says in Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence... Of things we cannot see. Now, other versions that you may have may say something like, Now faith is the assurance. It's the the substance of things hoped for, the, the conviction of things not seen. But they're all these same two Greek words that have to do with this idea of a firm, concrete, irrefutable evidence. It's the conscious decision to gather up the evidence, to examine it, and to choose to believe that there must be someone behind it all. And that belief triggers an an urge, a hunger to actually seek out whoever that is, like a detective who's in search of the culprit and won't sleep until they find them. They have this this hunger. They want to find who did it. They want to find who's behind it all. Scooby-Doo wants to find who's behind the mask. And it's that combination of a belief and a desire to act in light of that belief that we call faith. Hebrews goes on to say just a few verses later in verse 3, by faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. See, there's things in the world that we can see. The world itself. We can see the sky. We can see that the sun is beautiful right now. We can see the colors of, of the trees changing. We can see people who live in this world. But there's also things that we can't see. Like gravity. Like love. Like life itself. A spiritual realm. But faith is when we recognize that the two are actually intertwined and we choose to believe that the unseen exists and becomes seen in and through the world around us. And allowing that belief to guide our lives. But I think it's important to note here Just because faith is dealing with the unseen, that doesn't mean it's blind, and that doesn't mean it's foolish. Because I think sometimes we've been led to believe that, right? I think of, you know, Indiana Jones getting ready to make that leap of faith. That was a dumb move on his part. That wasn't wasn't faith, that was kinda stupidity on his part. We, We think that faith is this blind leap. We picture jumping into the unknown with no rationale, no evidence, no reason, and we call that faith. But I wanna push back on that because I don't think that's faith. Faith is actually an informed decision. That's why the Bible talks about counting up the cost for faith. It it is rational. It is logical. Because it's taking what I can see and what I do know, the evidence, the change, the transformation, and choosing to believe in what I cannot see and to act upon it. See, which is more plausible? If you walk into a room where the windows have been bashed in, you look at the lock and it's got scratches around it because someone wasn't very good at lock picking, and you can see that the lock's been picked. Maybe something valuable, a piece of art was stolen, or money, or machinery, or something, and the guy down the road saw someone sneaking around the back. And then you walk into that room and you say, Nothing happened. No crime was committed here. There's no suspect to catch because nothing happened. Clearly something happened because you can see the evidence. There's every reason to suggest that something happened. But if you walk into that room and you say, aha, a crime has been committed, that makes sense. It's logical to come to that conclusion. And not only that, but it's also logical to determine that someone is behind whatever happened there. It didn't just like disappear. Aliens didn't come in and like steal that money. It wasn't like spontaneous robbery, combustion, something like that. It it didn't just happen. Someone had to do it and it's rational. It makes sense to draw that conclusion. The world holds evidence of a God who not only created the world, but who changes people. Who transforms them. And they and others are eyewitness to that transformation. So the Christian faith is not blind. And it's not foolish. It's observing that something is different. Someone was one way, and now they've changed. Their life looks different. It's been transformed. And you can hear the testimony of others who have seen God at work, who have themselves examined all the evidence, And based on what they know about God, his his love, his provision, his power, based on what they've experienced about God, have determined that he not only exists, but is actually responsible for this thing called life. And having gathered up all of the evidence, concluding and choosing, deciding to allow that unseen God to guide the way you act and live. Maybe to put it a little more simply, faith is when we allow the unseen and the seen to collide and the impact of that collision to guide our lives. Now, if you're anything like me, that was a whole lot of big stuff. And you're like, can you give me like a picture of this? Because I think in pictures, like I open up the manual and I'm like, okay, don't give me a list of directions. Show me like which screw goes in which hole, point to it with a little arrow, and maybe we'll have a couch to sit on by the end of it. Maybe. (laughs) I need a picture so that I know what's going on. So some of you are like, that was a lot of words, Jessica. Give me a picture. Give me something I can, I can look at. That's perfect. Because Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, actually gives us over a dozen pictures of faith in chapter 11. It's often called the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame or Hall of Faith. And after defining in verse 1 what faith is, the author proceeds to help us understand what faith looks like. How to recognize it. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at some of those examples. And so I encourage you, this week even, open up Hebrews 11. Read some of those stories. Go back to the Old Testament. Read some of those stories there in preparation for the next couple weeks here. But this morning, I want to look at just one of Hebrews' examples that's there in chapter 11. And it's in verse 8 and 9. So I want to read this this picture of faith to you. Verse 8 It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Now this guy Abraham, first known in Genesis as Abram, is actually the first person we read about in the Bible who's specifically described in the book of Genesis as having faith. You might say, well, what about like Adam and Eve, Noah? They're they're later described as having faith, but the first person in the Bible who's used in conjunction with this word faith is Abraham. And God makes a promise to Abraham and he believes him, and he sa- it says in Genesis 15, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. But according to Hebrews, Abraham acted in faith even before that in an earlier encounter with God. Actually, it might even be his, his first encounter with God. We're not sure. The story the author of Hebrews refers to in these verses is found in Genesis chapter 12, just a few chapters earlier. And so I want to back up to that story, our first encounter with Abraham. And I want to read, I want to read it for you. So Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is the first kind of chapter of Abraham's, a.k.a. Abram's story in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Now let's be clear right here. At this point, Abram does not know God. We read that in other parts of the Bible, but this was a family who was not currently following God, even though their ancestors had. His family actually right now is is following other gods, not the one true God, not yet. So Abram isn't obeying God here because he knows this God. That actually would have been easier, you know, to trust someone who you know. Rather, he's obeying something that he cannot see based on what he can. So what can he see here? It's just four verses, but what what does he see? Well, he can see that the offer that this God is presenting to him is better than his current reality. Because what God is offering him is a land And a nation and a blessing and a name and fame and and the opportunity to be a blessing to others but currently Abram is in a desert land with no hope of any of this see just a few verses before this we read that Abram's wife was barren she couldn't even have a son To bring honor to his family and not only that they are well beyond childbearing years which we all know is code for they ain't having any babies anytime soon short of a miracle it's just not going to happen he has no hope of becoming a nation He can't even bless his own family, let alone the rest of the families of the world. And so that's what Abram sees. But if you hold that up against what this God is offering him, it doesn't take a genius to to see which one is the better offer. I, I like snacks. And I get hungry during the day. So in my office, I have snacks on my desk. But I also have some snacks for Phoebe. And when she looks up at my desk, foolish first time mom mistake, I have snacks for mom right next to snacks for Phoebe. So she looks up there and she can see both of those snacks side by side. She can see mom's chocolate raspberry Milano cookies, 15 distinctive cookies, so the package says, that melt in your mouth. If you haven't had them, go to Meyer, go buy some, and give me a bag as well. Um, <laughs> these delicious cookies, and then for Phoebe, baby puffs, which also melt in your mouth. And when she looks up there at my desk with both of those side by side, I know it's a foolish mistake, she can clearly tell which is the better option. It doesn't take a genius to know that the Milano cookies are the better option, and she will choose them every time over her baby puffs, which is why they're still sitting on my desk and I have three cookies left. It doesn't take a genius to recognize that. For Abram... This decision clearly comes with with some sacrifice. He's leaving his family, but it doesn't take a genius to see which is the better option. So, Abram departed as the Lord had instructed. See, when Abram hears this, this call, this voice nudging him towards something better, even though he can't see what it looks like, even though he can't see the one calling, he can't see the land and the nation and the promise down the road, he obeys, not because he was a fool. I'm sure he weighed out his options, counted the cost, but he trusted in the unseen based on what he could see, which wasn't great, and he allowed that belief to guide his life by faith. See, faith often starts with a call, a a nudge, a whisper, that there's something more than what you see and know, something different, something better, and, and you may not be able to see it. But something in you looks around at this life, this world, and thinks, is this all there is? You look around at the brokenness, the heartache, the hopelessness, the violence, and you think to yourself like that detective in search of a solution, this isn't right. Something in the world is wrong. Surely there's something I've missed, some answer to these problems. And while you're standing there kind of sifting through, examining the evidence, you hear a call. Follow me. Leave this place. Leave this land and follow me to something right and true and better than your wildest dreams. You can't see it. You can't see me, but try me and test me and trust me and see if I won't keep my promises. And in that moment, Abram had a choice to obey, to follow, to allow the unseen to guide his life and his family, or not. And by faith, Abram obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance, even without knowing where he was going. Faith often starts with a call, but it requires a choice to allow the unseen God to guide our lives. It's a picture and an example of faith. And and you can go on to read more of Abram's story and watch how he allows faith to guide his life. He goes on to be used in, in several different parts of Scripture as an example, a picture of faith, along with countless others. Because if you could sit down face to face with him, and talk with him, and hear his story, the parts of his story that we don't have time to dive into today, but you can read about them in the book of Genesis, you would notice a change in him. So you'd notice a man who once was hopeless and nationless and nameless and fameless, and then you'd see how God had changed him, and now he has a name and a nation, and generations would trace their roots back to him and would point to his God as the one true God. And he could tell you story after story of how God provided, how God guided and saved And blessed. And although way back in Genesis 12, he had no idea. He'd sit here today and say, God kept his promises every single time. By faith, Abraham. I already mentioned that we're going to look at a few more stories over the coming weeks here, so I don't want to spoil their stories, but I want to take a look at just one more. There's so many stories of faith that we could look at in the Bible, but there's one that's just kind of been rolling around in my head over the past few weeks. It's not actually in Hebrews. Interestingly enough, this story on the surface seems to be a crime, Actually, a pretty scandalous one. If newspapers had existed at this point, it would have been like front page material. It was a high profile theft. Something incredibly valuable to a lot of people was hidden away in a cave for safekeeping and it was sealed up so that nobody could get to it. But a few days later, it was discovered missing. It was gone. Someone had stolen it which had everybody pretty shook up, obviously. Where did they put it? Who would take it? Why? But a closer examination of the evidence, if I can put on my sleuthing hat, would prove that this was, in fact, no robbery. I'm going to read it to you in John chapter 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived, and he went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. See, it seemed at first to be a robbery, but it wasn't a robbery at all. It was a resurrection. If it had just been a robbery, we would have nothing to base our faith on. Which is why people actually tried to say that that it was just a robbery. But Mary and Peter and the other disciple John knew that couldn't be true because they were first-hand witnesses. They arrived at the scene and quickly realized that something had changed. Things were not as they had left them, but they would soon realize that actually everything had changed. And they would bear testimony to what they had seen, not just to the rest of the disciples, but to the rest of the world through what we today can hold in our hands as the Bible. And some of you might be thinking, well, Jessica, I'm a little confused. I mean, the story of Abraham, I get that picture of faith. But this is a little different. It doesn't quite fit the mold for a picture of faith. And you're right. In one sense, it doesn't fit the mold. That's because it is the mold for a picture of faith. The story is part of the very foundation of every story of faith from that point forward. It's like the smoking gun of the Christian faith, the evidence that makes our faith actually work and actually makes sense and worth believing at all. Because what Mary and Peter and John could see was an empty tomb with grave clothes and wrapping, sitting where they left a body. But what they couldn't see was a body. Because it was gone, and it was alive. And what had changed was that death no longer had the final word, but Jesus had the final word. What they couldn't see right now was that dying was not the end of the story, but that through Jesus, life was actually obtainable. And Jesus had to be who he claimed he was, the Son of God. And what he had offered and promised all along, life and life to the fullest and life abundant, was actually obtainable through him. And they, along with not just a handful, but hundreds of others, would bear witness to that change. A living, breathing, risen Jesus. But the story is also a picture of faith because when verses eight and nine say, then the disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed, for until then they, they hadn't understood the scriptures. That word believed is the same Greek word the author of Hebrews used when he wrote in the hall of faith. See, for John, this was a moment where he had already heard a call to follow Jesus, and he had actually done that. He'd been following Jesus, but now he's standing in an empty tomb, and all the pieces came together, and it was real to him. He believed everything that he had heard Jesus teach about life, about others, about a different way to live and and, and live eternally. And in this moment, he chose faith. He believed because he experienced it for himself. He had examined the evidence and held that up beside the promises that Jesus had made and finding them all true, he could not deny the evidence. He Believed by faith. See, I wonder if this morning there are any of us who find ourselves in John's shoes. You've walked with Jesus, you've known him, you've heard his teachings. But your faith has in some form or fashion been rocked. And what you thought you believed in seems to have been stolen away. And you find yourself in need of a moment where your faith can be restored. Where you can believe again. Where you can plant a new flag in the ground and say, this is this is a moment I will look back on and remember that I believed. A moment where I examined the evidence and looked at what I could see and considered what I couldn't see and decided that what I knew about Jesus had to be true. And I can stake my faith on what I cannot see because I know based on what I've heard and what I can see that Jesus is alive and well and offers life if I'll just choose to follow him with mine once again by faith. Or maybe there's someone here who is like Abraham, not the Abraham that we hold up on a pedestal and say, wow, he's a great man of faith, but Abraham at the beginning of his story. Where you've heard stories of God. Maybe your, your ancestors, your family has followed God. But you don't know him yourself. And you sense a nudge. A whisper of a call saying, follow me. Trust me, even though you can't see me, I have something so much better, so much greater in store for you and for your life. Though you can't see the road ahead and and you're not even sure where it leads, trust me. See if I'm not true to my word and my promises. And you have a choice to follow. To allow the unseen to guide the path of your life by faith. And then there's probably several of us in the room who don't find yourself in either of those categories. You're not a John or an Abraham. Then be the eyewitness testimony. See, there are people in the world who are examining the evidence and sifting through it and trying to make sense of of this world and, and faith. But the missing piece they need is the eyewitness testimony of people who have seen what God has done, who have seen that he's held true to his promises. And so if you're not a John or an Abraham, then be the eyewitness testimony. Tell others how you've witnessed him come through in your life and offer that as a piece of evidence to the faith that you have to someone who's sifting through it all right now by faith. So this morning, I want to close us in a word of prayer. And if you would, bow in prayer with me. God, we know that our faith is not blind. It's not foolish. It's not irrational. Because it is based on the God who never changes, but who changes us. Who offers life because you have conquered death. And even though we can't see faith, we can't We can't hold it in our hands. We can see evidence of you in the world and the people around us. But God, we live in a world that can rock our faith, that can cause us to question what we believe, like John the disciple questioning how a savior could die. But God, we know that there's an empty tomb that gives us a reason for our faith. And so, Father, if there's anyone in this room who is struggling with a shaken faith, God, would you give them the courage just to raise their hand? If that's you, just raise your hand. Say, I, I'm struggling with my faith. I'm doubting. I have faith. Help me with my unbelief where I'm lacking. God, I pray for those who are doubting, who know you, but have had their faith rocked. God, would you once again be the rock for their faith? Would you help them stick a flag in the ground and say, I believe because I've seen the evidence, because I've heard the testimony. And God, would you strengthen their faith so that they can once again be the eyewitness testimony? And there may be some who I hear this morning who, like Abraham, don't even know who God is. But you're sensing that call. A call to come and follow and maybe you've been sifting through the evidence for a while but maybe today you want to say I, I've sifted through the evidence and nothing else in this world makes sense and I want to follow God even though I can't see him because what he's offering seems to be better and so if that's you would you just raise your hand just so I can pray for you So I can pray that you would have eyes to see. God, I pray for those who are sensing a call from you. That they would respond to that call, to that nudge, to follow you. Maybe it's for the first time, maybe it's to follow you once again to obey once again. God, would you give them faith? God, would you change lives so that we can see and be the eyewitness testimony to how you have worked? And would you receive all the glory and all the honor through our life stories? We give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray.